Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Welcome back to a new school year, Steve. Thank you, Russell, and welcome back to everyone that's listening with us today. How's your week been, Russell, since you've gone back to work? Yeah, well, down in Devon, we're, uh, well, where I am in Devon, we're starting back a little bit later because we finished quite late in the summer term. So, so far, no children for me, two inset days. And I have to say, Steve, just come back really positive and rested, realising that I need to put my health and well-being first this term because like everybody at the end of that summer term, I was <laughs> I was ruined, I was tired, <laughs> overweight, needed to stop having <laughs> as much beer every night. So yeah, I'm feeling good and seeing my colleagues at work has really lifted my spirits, reminding me what a great bunch of people I work with. And yeah, I'm excited about seeing the children, but I think at your place you've started to have some children back and you're sort of in the swing, probably shattered, but how are you feeling? Yeah, oh, I think... Um... The weird feeling of being buzzing to be back, yet extremely tired by the end of a Friday. But we sure. have got to say, very good to listen to shortly. Yeah. Um, in terms of school, yeah, very good. Um, all's gone smoothly so far, touch wood. I think it's a different kind of brain exhaustion that we're going through at the moment. Mm. But the minute those children came in, we had two inset days that are very full on in prepping for the school and making sure the actual grounds are safe. Yeah. But the minute those children walk through the door, everything becomes worth it, doesn't it? Because yeah. they, they were buzzing, they were smiling. We had a lovely balloon arch on the entrance for them to come in. Aww. It just felt great to have children that we haven't seen for five plus months Gosh, all walk yeah. through that door and feel like they're back in the community, back at a place they feel safe. And do you know what? Behaviourally and um, positivity has it exubed from these children they've really mm. come back focused and I think that reflects on the team actually I can only thank my own team at school because they have been amazing since day one and whilst we haven't got every year group back uh, by the end of today we will have a Monday I think everyone has pulled up their socks and really gone to town after an exhausting summer term mm. I hope everyone had relaxed so well because they've come back all guns blazing and really given everything for these children that have attended Aww. school that's brilliant. And I think throughout those months in the summer term and, and now we're seeing the best of our profession, people that are yeah. fully committed to the job and to the children. And, you know, you gave me the tingles then talking about the kids coming in because I can't wait to see that Monday. Yes, we're all a bit nervous about, you know, how that's going to look. But I just know and trust my school community is going to pull together. And uh, yeah, there'll be some things that won't feel the same. But just seeing those children and getting them back and learning is something I'm really excited about. So yeah. you, you mentioned briefly earlier, Steve, we've got something good to listen to. Um, mm. Steve and I earlier this evening caught up with someone I really admire, an author and illustrator called David Litchfield. And I won't spoil the interview, but just to say what a sort of gem of a guy he was. So what you're about to hear is our interview with author and illustrator David Litchfield, where you find out a lot more about the work that he does, why he does it, how he got into it, uh, the process of writing those books and yeah just a lot more about him as a human being have a listen hope you enjoy it okay well i am very excited today because we're joined by an author and illustrator called david litchfield and i'm embarrassed to admit that it was only a few months ago that i first came across david's work uh, but david i became an instant fan and you are definitely one of my favorite illustrators and authors so thanks so much for joining us on our podcast Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you, David. I also really love your books and um, we'll talk later, but Rain Before Rainbows is one of our cortex. I'm really excited to dive into that with the children. But could you start by telling us about 
why you became an author and an illustrator, and a bit about your journey into this line of work. Uh, I've always loved drawing, obviously, like since I was little. I, I used to make comics, my older brother and sister. Um, I used to make like Star Wars comics for them and um, all kinds of stuff, really. And, you know, they were, they were a lot older than me. They're like six and seven years older than me. So they kind of saw them as a, you know, they didn't really pay much attention to these comics. But occasionally I'd make a comic that would kind of get through to them and they'd, you know, they'd stop ignoring me <laughs> and they'd stop being <laughs> mean to me and they'd start to talk to me about this comic. And that really inspired me because I was like, wow, I'm actually like changing my brother and sister's attitudes and moods towards me. And that was really lovely to actually kind of get a response and just seeing something that I created kind of have that response, I think really kind of spurred me on really. But it wasn't until kind of obviously much later that I realised I could do it as a job. And in fact, I was, I, before I became a, a full-time professional illustrator, um, I, was, I was a teacher like you guys. I used, to, I used to teach, but older, I used to teach in like a FE college. Okay. Um, so like, ra- rather than adorable small children, <laughs> grumpy teenagers. Although they were lovely, they were really lovely. <laughs> I really enjoyed my time teaching them but um I always knew that drawing and just kind of telling stories and stuff was what I always wanted to do and I kind of became a teacher as a way of sort of paying off some bills like I I didn't even train to be a teacher I I did eventually but like initially I didn't it was like I, I came in to sort of teach some sort of workshops here and there and you know practical stuff and then I got hooked in I really I mean I really enjoyed teaching. Teaching was brilliant. And it kind of hooks you in, as I'm sure you probably know. It really, you know, there's a real yeah. buzz involved mm. in, in stepping into that classroom. And I absolutely love that. And just kind of passing on the, the small amount of knowledge that I had to these, these mm. well, I say kids, but, you know, they were between the age of 16 to like 60. Wow. <laughs> <Some of> them, <laughs> um, it was a real buzz and I really enjoyed it. So I stayed as a teacher for like nine years, some, which I didn't intend to do at all. It was like supposed to be for like six months or something. <laughs> and obviously having a regular paycheck was nice and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, I'd always had this burning desire to, to do this. And I kind of decided to just you know, to kind of sack my job in and, and go for it, which was the timing was not good because we just had like our first son and we're like just about to buy our first house and stuff mm. and i went to my wife oh do you mind if i like give up my regular income and buy <laughs> for children's books or see how it goes and bless her she was very good she's like right you've got one year you've got one year to make this work and you know i'd saved like some money before so i knew we weren't all gonna starve and stuff but <laughs> i just sort of went for it and um uh, uh, thankfully touch wood it paid mm. off and I haven't, I haven't looked back really. So, I'm, I'm really curious, David, because there must be so many people out there that do aspire to do that kind of work. And I know it's not an easy field to get into. I mean, Steve's partner, Laura, does loads of beautiful illustrations herself and has been dabbling with this. We've even done something right. me and her actually before, uh, you know, a, a book that we'd love to develop. But how, do, how does that transfer from a dream and a passion to something that actually someone's paying attention to? I don't know, really. I, it's, it sounds really irresponsible, this. But because I kind of didn't have anything else, I like quit my job and I just sort of was like, I have to do this now. Cause it's like, 
there's there's nothing else I can do. I mean, I could have gone back to my job, I guess, but well, actually, I couldn't because they've got someone to replace me, so I couldn't. <laughs> uh, but I could have gone back to teaching somehow. Sure. Um, but having that, having that kind of fear, kind of over you that you know you have to do this, was quite a powerful, and you know, it really kind of kicks you up the bottom to kind of do it. And um, I mean, that's probably, like I say, very really irresponsible, and it's probably there's probably better ways of doing it than just kind of you know, jacking your job in and, and just diving into the deep end. And, mm. But no, it really inspired, it really kind of got me going. And I mean, you know, the first, I mean, I, I, my first day as a, as, a, as a freelance illustrator, even though I didn't have any commissions on my first day, mm. was like January the 1st, 2014, or was it 15? Around about then, about five years ago, basically, <laughs> five or six years ago. And by April of that year, like nothing was happening. Like I'd been sending out my portfolio, sending out my website links. I'd been going and knocking on doors to like publishers and agencies and stuff. And, and just nothing was happening. And I started to get very disheartened. But then um, on Twitter, actually, I, I owe a lot to Twitter. Mm. Um, wow. I put one of my sketches and it was like a sketch. It was quite a cool sketch. It was a sketch of a, like a giant Hiding in the City, which then was the beginning mm. of the like, Randall Secret Giant. Love that book. Oh, thank you. Um, but the very first sketch of that kind of germ of an idea, I put up on Twitter just thinking, I'm going to put this out and see, get a few replies, you know, get a bit of encouragement. And it kind of got spread around a bit. And a lady called Anne Moore saw it, who was um, an agent for the Bright Agency. She saw it. And, you know, these are the Bright Agency are people that I'd emailed and sort of not got anything back from and stuff. But she just so happened to see it on, on Twitter. Wow. You know, they get inundated by emails and, mm. and kind of things. But she just happened to see it on Twitter and she really liked it. And she started chatting to me over Twitter. And, you know, that was a real boost. And then a couple of weeks later, she was like, do, do you want to come in and talk to the agents and, you know, bring any ideas, bring all your work? And, and so I got signed up to Bright sort of. A, a, and it was at that very point that I was thinking I've made a terrible mistake now you know the money is running out you know mm. the bills are piling up and you know I was, I was four coming up to five months in to this kind of dream that was going turning into a nightmare very quickly <laughs> um and that kind of really just kind of changed things really because um as soon as I signed to Bright's you know work started coming in and they, they got my first ever proper sit-down meeting with a publisher which was, uh, well, with an editor, a uh, publisher, and the editor's name was Katie Cotton. And I pitched to her, Grandad's Secret Giant, which was at the very, very sketchy, rough early stages. And she was like, oh, we're, you know, I think that one needs a bit more development. What else have we got? And then I literally had a sketch of a bear playing a piano, uh. and a, kind of an idea of like, what the story could be. And I literally just sort of told her the, like, and acted some of it out as well. <laughs> I was like playing the piano. <laughs> and she was like, we, let's do that. We'll make that as a book. And that was, that was it really. And, um, you know, I owe a lot, I owe a lot to Twitter. I owe a hell of a lot to Anne mm. for finding me on Twitter and for making, you know, all these jobs happen. And Katie Cotton, I absolutely, you know, I will forever be within those people's debt because it's, um, they're the ones that kind of turned it all around and, um, you know, yeah, that's where things started really. So, oh. so yeah, that's, I don't know, but it, there's so many other routes to take and, sure. you know, putting something on, up on Twitter, billions of things go up on Twitter every day. So it's all very mm. low. Mm. 
That's great to hear that kind of journey. So I mentioned earlier, I was very embarrassed that I discovered you only more recently, but it was through your collaborative effort with Smitty Halls. Oh, yeah. And the, the book Rain Before Rainbows, which I had a lovely day. I was at work during a slightly depressing stage, let's face it, for schools when we yeah. were facing mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. And it was from my school library. And she said, right, there's this PDF that you can download for free of this lovely book called Rain Before Rainbows. I thought, oh, that sounds nice. And it is just stunningly illustrated by you, David. And that unlocked my interest in all your other work and all your other picture books. So it was such a great thing for you to do um, but it's beautifully written as well by Smriti and 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 just had such a nice message at such a tricky time so can you tell us a bit more about that eff- that collaborative effort how did that come about and what was its purpose it was um it was a long time ago actually that I signed up to that and it's kind of quite strange how it's kind of all come about and connected with the times that we're living in because mm. I think it was about mm. It was like 2018 that I actually signed up to do that. Wow. wow. The, 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 you know, the text was pretty much set in stone. I think it's changed slightly, um, but not a great deal. And we went through so many different versions of it. And, you know, we, well, first of all, I came up with something like sketched out. Because basically I got Smitty's beautiful prose, because essentially it's kind of like a poem. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. just read this. We don't want to say too much about it. Just kind of see what you can take from it. And I took it very literally, at, uh, uh, um, well, not literally, but I was kind of thinking, okay, what's, what's this about? It seems like, you know, the refugee crisis was very kind of, well, obviously still is, but it was very prominent in the news mm-hmm. at the time. And I was sort of making connections with that, but I, was, I, I drew out some very literal kind of references. So it was like, you know, refugees kind of crossing the channel and stuff and you know horrific kind of image well not horrific but kind of referencing horrific imagery and stuff and then we kind of talked um and we kind of thought look we don't we don't need to be this literal we, we want it to just be a we want kids essentially but also adults to be able to see these characters and read whatever struggles they're going through into into these characters and into these situations and mm. And that was how we kind of based the artwork. And, and once I kind of got that into my head, I kind of was flying really. And a lot of the animals that kind of come, a, come around, you can almost read them as being metaphors for like people helping. And mm. you know, the, the, the stag is kind of like this dominant force that is kind of guiding them through. And, and yeah, no, and, but also I, I, ha- I mean, I had so much fun creating that artwork. It's quite unusual artwork for me, even though, you know, I'm kind of playing around with lights and colors and stuff. Mm. But, I, I wanted, well, we all wanted the, the animals to kind of look as realistic as possible, mm. um, apart from the little kind of magic fox, which we thought was still needed to be a bit more kind of fairy tale-esque. Yeah. Because we wanted to base it in reality and let people recognise its reality, but have the, also have this kind of surreal kind of element to it as well. And then, yeah, when it came time to sort of release it, I mean, it, it's, it's coming out in hardback next month. And that was always the plan to have it in hardback. And then when, you know, the chaos of 2020 happened, we were all kind of like, this book just feels like ridiculously relevant yeah. to now and yeah. what people are going through. And just the, just the fact that it was rainbows and kids were drawing rainbows mm. on their mm. window, we just saw a real connection to it. And we was like, I think if there's any way we can kind of release it early, you know, because I was thinking, oh, well, let's release it as the book and let's give the book away and, you know, but then obviously there's lots of costs involved. Yeah. <laughs> Thousands of books and stuff. And then it was Walker who, Walker who came up with the, the idea of um, 
of doing it digitally and, mm -hmm. and giving it away for free digitally and um, supporting Save the Children and connecting with that and stuff. And it just seemed to all, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't like to think of it as exploiting the situation, but it was like all these elements fell in place mm. at like uh, a very kind of unique time and it just felt right to sort of do it. Really. It was. And, you know, it just proved for me the pertinence of art and literature when things are tough. You need something to encapsulate what everyone's thinking and feeling. And I just yeah, saw it and was like, oh, like that just hit the nail on the head. And that's me that's as an adult. So, yeah. well, a lot of people I get, you know, I get emails and tweets and stuff. And a lot of people think we made it for lockdown. It I, was, I assume that. Yeah. 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 But no, it's completely it was. Um, I mean, the artwork was finished not long before um, lockdown because mm. it took so long. But the, the original sketches, I mean, I've probably got a timestamp on them somewhere on my computer. Yeah, they're from like 2018, wow. early 2019. So, oh, it's so, great. Yeah, it's, crazy, it's crazy how kind of things work out like that. Really. Definitely. And um, that's obviously an example of a book you illustrated, but you've produced plenty of books that you've <coughs> wrote the words for too. Uh, can you tell us about the difference between illustrating for someone else's words and then writing and illustrating the story yourself? There, I mean, it's they both got their like, they both got their like happy little challenges <laughs> to them. Um, <laughs> I mean, they are different. I, I, I don't, I, I don't think it's too controversial to say that I enjoy making my own more. Of course. I mean, I absolutely love. I absolutely love all of them. And when I made this decision to become an illustrator, I kind of assumed that I would only be doing hmm. other people's books. Like I would be a, a, a commissioned illustrator. Um, but the first ever book I made was like The Bear and the Piano, which is one I wrote. And I still kind of feel odd when people say I'm an author because like that was never really the plan. Like, I always had stories and I always thought that I'd be, you know, I'd, be able to, I'd want to tell them, but I never assumed... I'd get to. I, I'd always assumed I'd be sort of helping other people tell their stories. And so, yeah, the first book was about the piano. And then the second book was um, The Building Boy, which was with Ross Montgomery. So it was instantly straight into sort of, and like literally instantly, I finished drawing The Baron Piano. In fact, I think they overlapped a little bit. I think I was still drawing The Baron Piano when I started drawing The Building Boy of Ross Montgomery. And it's, that, that was a real kind of... Um, education on how to work with an author, I guess, in a, in a really good way, because Ross is lovely and he's really easy to work for. So I think I was actually quite lucky that that was my first experience of that. And I guess the, I guess the reason why, I, I mean, there's a, di there's a different kind of pressure when you're working with an author, because they've got their own interpretation, well, they've got mm. an interpretation. They invented the world that you're like, yeah. working within, mm. the characters and stuff. So they know what they're, it's all in their heads. And then when they first see your first round of sketches, it's always terrifying because it's like, <laughs> well, you know, am I anywhere near what's in your head? Or, But then you sort of, one thing I found working with Ross is it's like, if you can kind of find a, um, I don't know if compromise is the right word, but like a middle ground where it's like, it's half you and it's half them. And it's, you know, it's half their interpretation, half your interpretation. And that's kind of almost where a little bit of magic happens because mm. it's like, you know, you've got two, two minds. I'm, there's a song lyric in this somewhere. Two <laughs> minds sort of working together as one. Um, and yeah, I mean, I loved working on the building. I've, I've loved working on most of the... In fact, there's like only like probably two books that 
I didn't have the best time working on, but we won't mention them. Um, <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> most, of the, most of the other collaborations have been absolutely yeah. incredible. And to be honest, the two that I'm talking about uh, were also brilliant. Just, <laughs> just tricky. It would be great to actually be a fly on the wall and see the conversation journey that happens well, between all from illustrators. It's the well. odd thing sometimes. I mean, it's like Ross and Smriti and... Um, Oh, God, is that it? I think they're the only two that have... No, that can't be right. But it's very rare that you actually meet an author because a lot of the authors right. I'm working mm. with have been in America. So mm. we've had sort of Skype chats and Zooms and stuff. Um, but yeah, no, I think I've only met those two who have actually worked. Wow. No, that can't be right. Let me just see who I've worked with. Because <laughs> I, be I have made, I've, you know, made two or three books with Ross and... Um, yeah, that's crazy, right? I've only, I've only met two of the authors. Um, but apparently that is quite common, even for people yeah. who live in England and stuff. It's like, you know, especially now, it's like almost impossible yeah. to, to meet well, anyone. So, Well, the uh, Building Boys sneaked into my year one curriculum, you'll be pleased to know, actually. Oh, really? Oh, brilliant. So as oh, well okay. as you featuring as an author of the term, the Building Boys in the year one uh, curriculum. Oh, wow. and, uh, yeah, it's gone down really well with the year one teachers. They're really looking forward to delivering that this year. Oh, good. That's good yeah. to know. Yeah, it's awesome. So um, one thing that is definitely undeniable about your books, David, is you, you produce properly heartwarming stories. Like all of them give you that fuzzy, good feeling. And I'm just curious, what do you think that tells us about you as a person? I don't know, really. It's quite like, I don't, I don't, like when I was making The Bear and the Piano, I was a bit like, oh, I'm worried that this is going to depress children a little bit or they might kind of get a bit upset that, you know, the bear's quite sad and the bear... But um, I don't know. I think um, I think it's more to, to to sort of a reflection of what I respond to in terms of like books and even mm. films and things. You know, I'm a bit of a sucker for kind of emotional films and things. And um, but without sounding too corny, you do take us on that journey. It's not just like mm. you know, it's not shallow sentimentalism. It's it. They really do take you on a lovely journey of. Oh, that's of great. Feeling that bit of sadness, but then feeling like, oh, you really get the oh, reader. Oh, bless you. Well, that's very nice. But I mean, you know, I, I do think it's important to put a bit of yourself in, in the stories. And the great thing about children's books are that, you know, it's, you can work so well with metaphors. Like, I don't want to, like, even the bear, and the, the bear and the piano for me is like quite a personal um, book because it's about... And this it sounds really silly, really, but it was like when I first went to university, like that was the first time I'd like left home and sort of um, went outside my comfort zone and stuff. And, you know, that can be really affecting when you're young. And, um, you know, and, and that's kind of what the bear's doing. He's going outside everything he's ever known to kind of pursue his dreams and stuff. And it's kind of a story that I think a lot of people can relate to in that sense. Mm. Um, but, you know, even something like um, Lights and Cotton Rock, which for me is like my most personal book that I've ever done. Oh, there it is. I'm so proud of that <laughs> book. It's such a personal book for me. But even though it's about aliens and UFOs and stuff, which I've never had any personal kind of contact with. Not that I know. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the kind of the things that you can read into these things. And, you know, that's the great thing about, about children's books is, you can kind of get across these quite deep and meaningful messages, mm. but they're also 
full of colourful UFOs and bears who play exactly. piano and mm. giants and things. And mm. I think that's the, one of the greatest things about, about telling these stories, really. Mm. And one thing we obviously really admire about you and your illustrations is the magic you do create when you weave with light and colour. And we touched on it earlier. Uh, can you tell us some more about the process and how you'd end up producing these captivating images that are so common in all your books? Oh, thank you. Well, to be honest, it was a bit of a mistake, the whole light thing. It was one of the, like, uh, I think it was in The Bear and the Piet. No, it wasn't. It was on, um, again, another one of the sort of sketches for the Grand Secret Giant um, book, but like way before the book was even begun. I just started messing about with kind of... Um, so I'd, I'd make a mess with all these watercolour washes and stuff, like in real world. And then I started scanning them into my computer and then like on Photoshop, overlaying them. And it was just like a real kind of eye opener because I haven't really used Photoshop very much apart from kind of putting a few kind of graphic design kind of stuff. But using actually my artwork was a bit of an eye opener. Mm. And just seeing the kind of textures all blend together and mm. I could see that sort of shafts of light would sort of just appear where, where like a, a paintbrush would have gone and stuff and it was slightly um, slightly more opaque than all the other paint. And I just really loved how that reacted to each other. So it was kind of a bit of a, a case of trial and error and just trying to remember what I'd done and stuff. And, but for me as well, it kind of goes back to my, the actual why I use light in such a way. It does kind of go back to like, like films again, like I, you know, Steven Spielberg, like how he uses light where mm. the light is such a reflection on kind of the character's emotions and stuff. And, you know, they, um, things like E.T. and Close Encounters where light plays such an important part of like telling the story and getting you to know who these characters are and how they're feeling. Um, I think that was just drilled into me from like a young, cause you know, my older brother and sister used to make me watch, well not make me, but I used to watch Close Encounters and all these kind of great sci-fi movies when I was younger. Um, mm. And it just comes from there, really, I think. Mm. Nice. Yeah, it does shine through. Mm. It's, it's in every book, and it's always the bit that my daughters are like, because oh. oh. <laughs> you mentioned the word kind of surrealism, but it's that kind of mixture of, I mean, I've, I've got a uh, granddad's giant here. Interestingly, my copy says the boy and the giant. Is that like an oh, Americanism? You've got the American version. Yeah, I don't know why I got some, that version, but uh, it's beautiful. And, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at some of the pages here, which obviously our listeners won't see, but I'm showing up on the screen. And it's just that ability to just, yeah, and you talked about texture in this page here with the waves. It's just, it is just beautiful. It really is. Um well, no, pleasure. I was going to go on next to ask you a bit about um, sort of your favourite book from your collection. I feel like we might be heading in the same way here because I have mine lined up, which uh, which is Lights on Cotton Rock, I think. I think that is my favourite. I, I love them all. I love the, the, the Bear Trilogy. I love uh, the Giant but there but light lights on cotton rock for me is is the one that gets me um and for me it is it is about i mean getting a bit deep with it all like you were really um it's that kind of idea that uh, the main character's happiness was a lot closer than she thought it was and she was out there kind of looking for something for years and years and sort of found it much closer to home i i think i relate to that and maybe i'm just getting old um but you kind of <laughs> see that and when you have your family i don't know there's something that connected with me there as a as a, no, as a... I, I guess that's it when you're young and well not even when you're young but you know I, I just think it's it's so easy to kind of assume that there's better things out there that which there absolutely are of course but it's like sometimes you just got to take stock of what you've got in in your life and kind of you know see 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 where you're at and live in the moment really mm -hmm. 
and I think that is a lesson that lots of people can kind mm. of learn and yeah absolutely. absolutely maybe it's because we're getting older I don't know maybe so would that be the book for you if you had to pick um, one from your own collection I, think, I mean to be honest the Baron of Piano will always be like special to me because that's the one that like started my career and allowed me to kind of you know really focus on on what I'm doing and, mm. and stuff and I'm very proud of the artwork in that and yeah but yeah, I think like the Cotter Rock uh, at the minute. I, I mean, I probably should say the new Baron. The, the well, we'll go there in a minute. Don't worry. <laughs> yes. From a personal point of view, the the lights and Cotter Rock is, and also because of my love of those great 80s sci-fi. Yeah, I felt like I was in a really American scene and I like yeah. that out mm-hmm. in this kind of woods, maybe somewhere like Alaska or something, you know, yeah. somewhere quite northern and just really cool. And yeah, I just love it. And it's just the diversity of pictures, but there's a real... Um, there's a real kind of lovely rhythm and pattern to the storytelling of that book as well. And I thought it was one of those books, I think all your books would work right across the age ranges, which as a primary teacher, when I'm being pragmatic and thinking of things that can be used in school, that's a gem in a picture book, something that a five-year-old would enjoy and I think an 11-year-old would. Um, But also just not that you need to ever use a book for a trigger for writing but if I needed a picture book to generate um, some writing ideas for children like I think picture books are amazing for filling in the gaps as well aren't they because yeah. there's so much mystery around your main character and why she was even in the woods in the first place well, that's it. I, I think you can do a lot without saying too much really and Absolutely. Then, uh, especially kids they will they will put so much of their own story into into these characters stories and they'll they'll be able to you know that's another thing i did i learned from making the bear on the piano is like when i first pitched it it was quite wordy and i was describing a lot and you know katie the editor was like look we can get rid of 50 percent of these words and mm. it is going to work so much better and she was absolutely right it's you know yeah. especially wow. with people, you, you mm. let, the, let the pictures do the do the do the talking really like they tell the story and yeah. kids can kind of interpret them how they how they want to really mm-hmm. so david if we were to build on this idea of favorites um, yeah. do you have a particular picture book from another author which you particularly love um oh it's it's a cliche really but where the wild things are i think is, uh, uh, yeah. russell really i remember you studying that at dartford Bridge. yeah when i moved I really, with steve mm. that was always that was the book i kick started year four with and actually i'm so pleased you said that because we um we i like a bit of weird somewhere in the english curriculum there needs to be and in our english curriculum we've got a few um bits where the teachers can have an either or we didn't want to dictate everything but there's like an either or and uh we had uh, a lot a very strange but wonderful book i love called um the wolves in the walls by neil gaiman which are very strange typically Neil Gaiman a bit odd and strange and sharp edges and but really cool book and but the option we put alongside that for something a bit strange but a bit wonderful was where the wild things are yeah tell us about why you like that book um I I mean just it's one it's the book that I most remember from my childhood I remember when I first saw it I was in like my my class at school and my teacher Mrs Bunnage um got us all together as I'm sure you guys do your your group got us all together on the mat and said, right, I'm going to read you this story. And she got the book out. And I just remember like, like absolutely just like marveling at the artwork mm. and just how it looked and how these creatures were like things I'd never seen before. Mm. Like, what was I? I guess I was five or six. But I have such a vivid memory of it. And I don't have many memories from that time at all. But I really remember this moment and... And then, yeah, afterwards, asking her to see the book, and I was literally just obsessed by the artwork. And mm. 
And obviously, again, it goes back to what we were saying, the story, you can read so much into what's going in the story, you can interpret it however you want. There's hardly any words again. Um, it was just a very visual story that kind of I really responded to, really. And it's a book that, I mean, I've still got, you know, I pestered my mum to buy it soon after that. And I've still got that copy, which is a good few years old now. And it's, you know, it's taped up and it's like, it's knackered, but I will hopefully keep it forever. Um, and yeah, I just, I just find that's like a go-to book when you kind of need a bit of a boost for mm. kind of creativity and just to see what, you know, what, what the peak of children's book is, I, I guess. Is, is, that's, that's how I see it, basically. Yeah, it's a great choice. And mm. uh, you just got me thinking about the fact that there's those pages in there, isn't there, where there's, there's no words. You know, there's double pages of the, uh, the, the uh, wild things just having their rumpus in the forest. And Absolutely. And so cool. There's no words, but they're like the loudest yeah. words, loudest pages you can <laughs> yeah. ever ever hope for it's just there's so much noise coming from those images and i like what i love about morris sendak is you know talked about that weird but i think you know it's tempting to only give children literature that always makes sense straight away and feels cozy and actually sometimes having something really odd like a morris sendak but oh, yeah. and that's nowhere near as oddest is it this there's, there's no really... <laughs> no, well, he was bonkers um yeah, yeah no i love it man i love that book it's it's just incredible i was an absolute work of art it really is Great choice. So let's um, let's bring it to your new book because I love it. I had it on pre-order for about three months, and oh, you know that thing when you pre-order something and you forget about it, and then it comes in the post. And you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that happened this week, and it's the bear and the piano and little bear's concert, which is sort of third in that trilogy. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about that book and that kind. Of, I mean, you've said a bit about how that one came about and how sort of important it is to you. My seven-year-old thought this was awesome again. So you've got oh, her okay. kind of stamp of approval. But yeah, tell us a little bit more about this final one. I don't want to spoil it for anyone either, though. So again, it's... Um, I mean, The Bear and the Piano was like... I never thought of it as a trilogy when I was making it. It was, it was something that came about when the... You know, to be honest, when the first one was such a success, the publisher was like, do you think we could do another one or maybe two more? And I was sure. like, okay... We, I'm not, I did, I, initially I was very kind of hesitant to do it, but I did the second one, which is called The Bear, The Piano, The Dog and The Fiddle. But I was very much like, well, look, if we're going to make a sequel, I don't want it to be like a straight sequel. So we focused on these other characters, Hector and Hugo, who was like this dog that was kind of inspired by the bear and picked up the fiddle and, you know, learned to play. And it's more about their adventure and the bear sort of a background character. And I was really happy with that. But then I was like, oh, actually, I, I love this character, this bear character. Um, and if I, then I started feeling a bit guilty that, you know, I owed so much to this bear. It sounds weird. <laughs> but I owed so much to this bear that I felt that I needed to give him another, another go. And so the third book is, is more of a direct sequel to the first. If sure. You even though it's, there's very much ref, there is reference to the second. Book. Yeah, you could miss the second one, and it still makes sense. Yeah, yeah totally. And um, so, but, so it's it's catching up with the bear, you know, a few years after his fame and fortune, and he's kind of gone. Uh, it hasn't worked out as he, as he planned, as you know, a lot of musical careers don't. And I guess because he was a bear, it was more of a gimmick than mm. you know people going to see him because it's a bear. Even though I'm sure he's a fantastic musician and the music base is lovely, the, the gimmick kind of died down and people got a bit bored and didn't start coming uh, to his concerts. So he moved back to the forest for good. 
Um, and he was kind of sad because he's missing his old life and the music and the friends that he made and his bandmates and stuff. But then he has a daughter uh, all of a sudden um, called Little Bear, who is obviously taking up a lot more of his time and distracted him from <laughs> uh, his past life. And then the daughter, uh, Little Bear, because she's kind of quite fast and naughty, runs through the forest and she discovers the piano that we saw at the end of the first book. Um, and that's when it opens up into like, you know, she asks her dad about his old life and his old concerts. And then we kind of go from there, really. Yeah. And it's beautiful. Yeah. And I don't want to give too much away, but I do feel the urge to ask you whether I'm going to get a book either called The Deer and the Kazoo or The Fox <laughs> and the Harmonica or The Owl and the Banjo. Ooh, There's oh, wow. a couple of others that I don't want to spoil for. But they, they <laughs> yeah, all just sound something. like absolute wonders. The Owl and the, and the Banjo. Would be quite I like that one. That was the one that hit me actually. Yeah, I just thought, yeah, and I quite enjoyed drawing him. I thought, oh, I could do some more with him. He's but got that real the... hipster vibe to him, isn't he? That owl. oh, totally. He's got the a bit of Steve kind of thing. Going. Yes, that's what it is, isn't um, it? Yeah, with his banjo with like mm. not enough strings and stuff. Um, <laughs> but I also, I've always had it in my mind that I'd quite like to tell the story of um, the the double bass player, the wolf. From both from both the sequels, because yeah. he just seems really cool. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he's a dude, and I'd quite like quite like to see his story. So maybe who knows? You know, this is officially the end of the Bear and the Piano books, though. <laughs> there could be a few spin-offs, maybe. I don't know. They totally could, and that um, again, yeah. I don't want to sort of spoil it, but there's a particular double page spread in all your books. There's at least one double page spread that makes you just ah, and it's it's mm. got to be it's got to be this one where we've got lots of oh, our, yeah. lots of okay. our friends there. I call that the the the, um, the live aid page. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Feed the world in the world. Well, that was the one. See, see, I had this tendency when I first ever looked at picture books as a teacher to just see it as my job to read this book and not overly pay enough attention. Where you're one of those illustrators that gets me really slowing down and paying attention. And it was so cute because my eldest is now on the kind of scary crime novels and stuff. But anyway, she 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 went up with a book the other day and the little one, I said, oh, David Litchfield's new book's come through. Can I leave that with you for a minute? Just ponder over it, have a look. And she's not been reading enough, like lots of kids um, over the break. And she just sat for ages. Oh, and when wow, really? she was sort of doing that thing where they quietly read aloud and then she just stopped. And I looked <laughs> over to see what she was doing. It was that page. And she's just like, absolutely fascinated by every character <laughs> and like what are they playing dad and how are they doing that and that yeah. is marvelous i love that that's great do you know what i never get bored of hearing stuff like that that always gets me it's just great like i never assumed like i don't know like i always like feel that i should stay humble with stuff like that i should never get blase about hearing stories like that because it's just such a lovely thing it's oh. like such a such an honor to be sort of you know, have have my stories read in, in you know in any household. And I'm just the one you're hearing about. You know, there'll be <laughs> I know, yeah, so many yeah. people out there just enjoying one of your stories tonight and experiencing oh, that magic. So thank you. Look, I I'm just made up that we got uh, half an hour or so to talk to you, David. And um, as I said to you before we start recording, our first sort of author and illustrator to talk to on the podcast, and it's been an absolute pleasure. You're a real gen and a genuine oh, guy, and um, yeah. I couldn't have been more happy with having spoken to you. So sort of thank oh, you so thank much. You. Fantastic. Steve, wasn't that a pleasure to talk to David Litchfield earlier this evening? What a fantastic guy David mm. was. And, and do you know what? The, the message that came across, it, it really um, 
honed in on why he does the job that he does and actually yeah. to to look at these books if you have not seen or, or read any of david's work it's a pleasure and when you think i get so much pleasure from it as an adult children looking at these books and reading them what an experience for a child i'd love to have had these when i was eight or nine years old Absolutely. i mean my one my one year old cannot get enough of the bear and the piano <laughs> and just looking for it she can't we can make it as fun as we want but we don't need to because yeah. the pictures do all the talking for yeah. her yeah, no, he's an incredibly talented guy and I can't say enough how, you know, even when the recording ended, David's just such a down-to-earth, lovely bloke who showed a real interest in us as teachers and people. And yeah, so please do, if you've, you've not really got into David's um, work yet and like me a few months ago, you didn't even know about his books, have a look. And I just think they're the sort of books that any age range can enjoy. The beautiful, the passion is there in, in, in his work. So no, top guy. And for me, it was just so exciting because as teachers, we often in, in front of our classes, second guess the thought processes <laughs> of the authors we're talking about, don't we? And we go, well, perhaps they were meaning this and thinking this. So to actually have someone talk through stuff and the kind of even the metaphorical elements of his imagery and wow, what a treat. And, and um, I hope people listen to it and sort of share insights when they share those books with, with children in the schools. You know, you've got the real man there telling you a bit about his thought process share that with children because uh yeah it's a great interview yeah and you know when someone's a great author when we can't say what our favorite book is because we've got so many to choose from yeah i was and i think apart from both of us wanting to go down the pub and have a pint to talk to david even more yeah it, su it sums up what a great guy he is and yeah. what he's doing his friends class that's an official uh, offer david if you're ever in uh, <laughs> ken or devon come and have a pint with us because uh, yeah top bloke well Teachers listening, whether you're uh, just starting that new term or you've come across this podcast later in the year, we just want to say what an amazing job you're doing, how proud we are to belong to this profession. And if, you're, if you are just launching to the new term or you're still in the midst of tough times, keep going because the work that you do is making an enormous difference to your children, to your school community. So keep going, keep pulling together as a profession, pull each other up, don't pull each other down. And uh, yeah, have a cracking term, have a blast. Have a great term, everyone. Stay positive, keep smiling, and doing what you do for the children. Don't keep the deputies.